Oh, good. We've got Louis back. No, <laughs> I've got one of the dogs in here. He's the noisiest one. I shall send the other one out. Hold on. I think we should make a feature of it, Paul. What do you think? Louis, get out! <laughs> it wasn't actually Louis, it was Otto Barkson. Uh, the cleaner. I really think we should make a feature of it. I think they will make a feature of themselves, actually. I'm giving myself my own cue. Oh, I've just seen a green light. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Football Ruin My Life, the podcast series that looks at football through the lens of what happened before the start of the Premier League. And today we're going to be talking again with my two closest companions here. We have the beautiful Scottish burr of Patrick Barclay. Hello, Paddy. <laughs> Hello, Paddy. It's not so much a burr as a hacking cock. And we've got the Midlands basso profundo of John Holmes. It's a flat Midland tone, as it's been <laughs> Okay. And today, the three of us are going to be talking about the great players of our youth and how they might or might not have performed in the context of the current Premier League and the current demands on players and, and the facilities now available. And I'm going to start by nominating six players from the past that we will all have seen, some more often than others, but they are undisputably great players. And there is one in particular I want to eventually start with because he's the one that I think might actually struggle, so no particular order at all. The players are Stanley Matthews, Tom Finney, John Charles, Bobby Charlton, George Best, Bobby Moore. Now, it is my contention that Stanley Matthews, of all those six, I think the other five will probably be fine. But I think Matthews might struggle. Yes. I'm sorry to start off by agreeing with you, but I knew that that would be the one as soon as you'd read out the list. Winger, of course, in the modern game is the hardest thing. Alex Ferguson once said that, and I think he was right, because basically you've got less vision. You can only look across the line. And particularly that would be true for a winger such as Matthews. Yes, of course, he would be easy to mark out of games in the modern game. But what would happen, of course, is that he would adapt. I don't know where he'd end up. I wonder if he would end up as a number 10 or something. I don't know if his passing was good enough for that. Or his vision, should I say, was good enough for that. But I think the others, all of them, would actually bring something to the modern game. But Stanley Matthews, yes, would struggle at first. John, do you have the same response? No, I don't. Great players are great players. Okay. Of course they would adapt. If you look at Stanley Matthews and his dribbling ability and his ability to get part, and also his football brain, there's a player at the moment, James Madison, who they've now found out plays best almost a right wing coming mm -hmm. inside position. There was a view to start with he was wasted being played on the right, but in fact, coming in from the right, he's been at his most productive. And he also dribbles a bit. He also goes past people. He plays a lot of good killer passes. And in an era when there aren't many players that go past people, take them on and beat them, he can do that. The other area where Matthews was, of course, very advanced was in terms of fitness, yeah. diet, training and so on. He was much more in that respect like a modern player playing for Arsene Wenger than he was a player of his era. 
He didn't smoke. He was fastidious about his diet, his fitness. And in that respect, surely he would have been even more advanced as our knowledge of those aspects of the game and sports science has grown. I have to say that I talked to Jimmy Armfield about him because Jimmy Armfield played right back for Blackpool when Matthews was outside right for Blackpool. And he was just fulsome in, in praise of Matthews. He just thought he was absolutely a great player. But of course, you know, people had much more circumscribed roles so that Jimmy was the right back and that was his job as a right back and Matthews was not going to come back and run around on the edge of his own penalty area to help out. Jimmy Arnfield's job was to get the ball and give it to Matthews. I don't think that would have appealed to Guardiola amongst others of a right winger staying on the touchline and not coming back into his own half but actually it made him a more potent attacking force. If you have attackers back in your own penalty area how can you get forward that quickly in those days? Yeah, I do think that football's sometimes been overthought in the modern era. It's underthought in the era that we're talking about. For example, you know, reversing your wide attackers, not wingers anymore, but reversing your wide attackers, which Guardiola did back at Barcelona. In fact, his predecessor, Frank Rijkaard, was, I think, the first who had people playing on the wrong foot so they could cut in and score with a bit of luck. Okay, it's not held Messi back. I think playing on the right and coming in on his left was the foundation of his career, but not everybody's Messi. And I think sometimes things are overthought. That said, for sticking on Matthews, he would have had to adapt his game so hugely. He wouldn't have been the Stanley Matthews that we sort of half remember the man who was said to put 10,000 on the gate wherever he went. John, apart from Matthews, the other five all had this ability to do something else. Charlton was a left winger at one point in his career, best played everywhere and never gave the ball back to anybody else if you didn't want to. And Tom Finney played outside right, outside left and centre forward. Do you think that adaptability that they showed as early as the 1950s was part of their greatness? Of course it was part of their greatness. And Finney, of course relocated himself he was naturally and started as a right winger but to accommodate Matthews he changed positions my father was always of the opinion that Finney was the best player he ever saw because of this ability to play in all the positions and so on and because of his physical durability as well I mean he did play centre forward which was a vastly different position to winger but Matthews was a great because he was a great it's interesting, isn't it? You mentioned Guardiola. And you've got Riyad Mahrez playing at the moment, who's a right winger. He's probably always best as a right winger. And he was tried on the left, but better on the right. And was dropped early on because of the fact he didn't drop back. And of course, Guardiola doesn't play him that much now. Would you argue against Riyad Mahrez being a great player? I certainly wouldn't. No, but Guardiola specialises in playing people out of position, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. And I remember, to my astonishment, in the European Cup final, as I still call it, when City were beaten by Chelsea, that he played De Bruyne, who is still the player that makes City tick, at outside left. It made no sense whatsoever. He had a terrible game and City justifiably lost. So Guardiola has this ability to put players into weird positions, even though they are modern players with all the adaptability of modern players and still get them to produce bad performances because of his own... I'm sorry, I'm not a big Guardiola fan, because of his own nonsense. <laughs> so he's and, not a great manager. Well, he, he's, a, oh, he's a very successful manager. He's an innovative, um, clever manager. Drives me bonkers because I don't actually like watching a lot of the football that he produces. And 
I have a group of friends. I've got even more friends than, than two of you. And we're city friends who used to go to matches together in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And I sent one of them a six-minute clip of Francis Lee on YouTube playing against Spurs in 1969. And we were all stunned and so impressed by the fact that when he got the ball, he turned, beat the man who was trying to kick him up the backside and went straight for goal without looking left or right. And the directness of his play was so refreshing compared to the ticky-tacky nonsense that Guardiola seems obsessed with. Mm. Yeah, the ticky-tacky nonsense. Mm. It is true that watching Manchester City can at times be painful. One, because they do retain the ball, mm. and now sides have decided that the best way to beat them is just to play 10 or even 11 men back, protecting their box. And then breakaway, we saw how Brentford beat them because they got the breaks right and Man City didn't get the balls in correctly at the right time. In preparation for talking today, I watched a bit of the 57 Cup final mm-hmm. and sides routinely lost possession or hit balls fairly aimlessly into space. Football was more random then. Sides attacked and defended. They expected to do both. There were fewer players defending or sometimes a lot more players attacking. Yes, But it was a different game. I think I might have mentioned to you that I did a comparison between the European Cup final of 1993, but I think it was, when Guardiola was actually playing for Barcelona when they were beaten 4-0 by Milan. I thought it was just the most stupendous performance and I decided to compare it with the 1960 European Cup final, Real Madrid 7, Eintracht 3. And the difference in the quality of football, if you measure quality by ball retention, was radical. Ah, well, this is where we part. Possession was just thrown away. And Colin, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're saying, well, who gives a toss about that? It was wonderful 7-3 game with two of the greatest players of all time, Puskas and Di Stefano. But can I make a suggestion about these six players that you've selected, Colin? Where would Guardiola play the six? Starting with Matthews. In goal, probably. <laughs> Starting with Matthews. John, what would he do with him? He'd be the Mares man, wouldn't he? He'd yeah, be in and yeah. out a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Dropped, yeah, dropped. Yeah. Uh, At which case, he would probably move on or do an interview with Piers Moron and um, <laughs> have his mural taken down. It's a fair point. Paddy makes a very good point, and it's worth pushing a little in, into this territory. And it's good that Paddy and I don't see it the same way. I don't see the slower pace of 60s football versus the current game. I don't see the lack of ability to retain possession of the ball as a problem. I see the openness of the play and the mistakes that were made actually as a positive because it made it a more interesting, exciting game. And it goes further. So the big clod-opping boots that they wore and the ridiculous shirts that they wore that gathered water and so they were they were like wearing six overcoats when they were playing and it was raining and the terrible pitches mm. never really bothered me because it made it like us we had to play in those conditions and that's why i'd rather liked it it wasn't watching the national theater version it was like watching an amdram version but we were amdram players so actually it cohered with what we were looking at but the final thing i want to say is mm. i hate the idea of a substitute goalkeeper on the bench because one of the great joys of life, whether it was your team or the other team, was when the number seven had to go in goal and the goalkeeper's carried off and everybody's shouting, shoot from the halfway line. And it was fun. I know every manager in England would say, this is the most terrible thing. How can you possibly support that? 
I thought it was great. What do you two think? I was present at a game, notorious game, that finished, I think, 5-3 to Leicester or 5-2 to Leicester oh. in the sixth round of the Cup against Shrewsbury, where they played three separate goalkeepers. That's right. <laughs> Wallington, who'd played umpteen games successively, then got savagely attacked by Chick Bates, continued for a bit, during which they conceded two goals. It was then taken over by... Alan Young, who then landed on his head and wandered around like he was concussed. <laughs> they then put five foot seven Linex in goal ah, for 10 minutes while Young recovered his equilibrium. So there was a comical element to it, but it did ruin games, didn't it? But to go back to Guardiola again, if you were to have no substitute goalkeepers now, and I don't think that's a daft idea, Colin. I'm not saying I advocate it. But I can really see what you're getting at. Because Guardiola wouldn't allow that to turn into a comedy. Because for a start, he'd have a substitute goalkeeper who was good enough to play outfield if necessary. Hmm. For example, Edison could play sweeper. He could play a second centre-half. I'm not saying he'd be brilliant, but it wouldn't turn it into a comedy. Because he's passing out from the back would be fantastic. In about 1990, City played at home against Derby County. And... Tony Coton was injured. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, I think he was, sorry, he was sent off. Yeah. And Niall Quinn went in goal. Yeah. And Dean Saunders took the resulting penalty. And Niall Quinn was in goal. And he only went and saved it brilliantly. It's sort of 25 times more satisfying for the supporter of the injured goalkeeper to see somebody do that rather than get a, a straightforward goalkeeping replacement. I don't advocate it too strongly. But I do think it had its merits. That's what I'm saying. When you've got 11 players on the team and 11 players on the bench, it's like American football. You're actually bringing into question the whole idea of substitutes because we've now gone up to five in the league in three bits, which takes out the old thing of scoring late on when teams got tired, the tackling got poor, and so on and so on. This idea that you can now change five players, I think that to me seems to be too many. But at the same time, it's added this extra dimension of the coach or manager's ability to make right substitutions and clever substitutions. And it's extended the number of players that make up a squad in the 60s and 70s, of course. The team was the team. Hmm. You know, players were transferred. I can't get in the 11, so I'll move. There were managers who didn't know what their best 11 was. That was a phrase that went on down the ages, didn't they? But you don't need to have a best 11 now. You've got a best 25. And managers love, particularly in football, the more substitutes they can make, the better. Not only because they think they can rectify their errors, but they can keep more of their players happy. But it is bad for football because football, at its very best, is a game of triangles, is a game of relationships. And I think it's much, much more difficult if you're having to adjust to the natural patterns of play of those around you. But to go back to Colin's list of six players, great players from back in the day, and how would they get on? In terms of fitness, one person who, had he not succumbed to alcoholism, would have had no problem at all with fitness was George Best. Yes. I mean, George would not have conformed to the modern game. He would just have done what he does, and it would have been no different. George would have been Cristiano Ronaldo. He would have played in exactly the same way and would have had the same flaw as Ronaldo in his latter years, which is selfishness, which George had throughout his career. Brings up a very interesting point, that, Paddy. Mm. Let me ask John, how do you think 
best would have responded to Fergie's treatment as opposed to Busby's treatment? I think there might have been a few teacups yes. thrown about. You don't know, because Ferguson was very good at getting greatness out of players, but he was also quite good at deciding that they needed to be moved on at the right time. And I think probably best would have been moved on. Where he'd have moved on to, I don't know, because it's a much bigger place now, football. Would best have gone to Madrid or Barcelona? I think the answer is, yeah, he probably would have done. I think he would, yeah. Probably. That's to do with modern life versus the, life in the The 70s, Mavericks but, but... is a different thing. When we're talking about great players, and I don't necessarily think he was a great player, but he was a very, very good player. Someone like Frank Worthington, mm. who had enormous ability but was a complete maverick, how would he have been in the modern game? Well, the answer is I still think he'd been pretty good. Stan Bowles, he would have been pretty good. Rodney Marsh would have been pretty Don't good. Don't start with me with Rodney Marsh. Don't start. Don't Tom start. Rogers would have been a pretty good player. There were a lot of pretty good players who might actually have been better. Yes. They would have probably had to knuckle down a bit more and might conceivably have been better players. But what's interesting about Best and, and Busby is that they loved each other. I mean, they absolutely did. I mean, Best never lost his respect for Busby and Busby never lost his love of George and his belief that George was a great player and will... Next week he'll do it again and he'll come and, and turn again. But it was very sad that the relationship disintegrated the way it did, that Busby seemed, having been so firmly in control of all those players, you know, going back to Charlie Mitten and getting rid of anybody who, who showed the slightest contrary opinion to his own. Yeah. He was brutal about that, and yet he indulged best. I agree with that. But I think that the circumstances were different when Matt was so ruthless, almost harsh, over harsh with Mitten and before him, Johnny Morris, yeah. both of whom were super players. He was building. When he had George or the problem of George, United were declining. There was no problem with George when he was putting Benfica to the sword on their own ground and winning the European Cup against the same club, I think, 18 months later. And all you had to do was gape at him and gasp in admiration. After that, he became a problem not only for Matt, but for other managers because of his illness, his alcoholism. That was the Munich air crash, wasn't it? Yeah. Clearly changed his attitude to it. Well, he became softer. And when we're talking of great players, there were a number of great players. I mean, Duncan Edwards being one whom we've discussed before, would undoubtedly, I would have thought, mm. had he survived or never been involved in the crash, would have gone on to be listed amongst those. Yeah, oh, without any shadow of doubt. Duncan Edwards certainly would have made it the magnificent seven rather than the six that Colin chose. While we're on that, though, to go back to Bobby Charlton, Bobby Charlton, of course, was in the Munich air crash. It was a survivor of it, and along with Bill Foulkes, remained on the field for that European Cup final in 1968 where they beat Benfica. George, of course, had come later. And I think that Bobby Charlton, too, was kept on at Manchester United, not under Matt, but under his successors, because Matt could not bear to watch Bobby Charlton's link with Manchester United be broken. You're quite right, Colin, to say that Matt became softer. What jury in the world would blame him, though? After what he'd gone through. The winning of the European Cup in 1968 for Matt was the closing of the door, that, you know, whatever image you want to use. That was what he was obsessed about to justify 
or not to justify water, in the memory of the boys who died, you know. And after that, he'd lost it. Yes, it was cathartic, I suppose. Yeah, Um, and those tears of Bobby Charlton coming down the steps after receiving the European Cup. And you can't help but think he was thinking of Eddie Coleman and Duncan Edwards and all the boys who went. Eddie Coleman was another who could well have gone on. Yeah. to be listed amongst the great players. He, he was extremely young at the time of the crash mm-hmm. and had great ability as an old-fashioned wing half. Yeah. Well, we're on to a different subject, but I just want to say, you know, despite the blueness of my, of my beliefs, it was the first game I saw, City United, and it was the Belfry Babes, and I, I remember how I, we felt at Munich, and I just had all the same feelings that any United supporter would have had, at how, and the country had, and the world had, at those boys dying. Can I ask the question of both of you about the maximum wage? Yes. Because, again, money clearly is a factor in football. And in the time we're talking about, even after the lifting of the maximum wage, there was an agreement, I understand, between Busby and Shankly for them to have a top wage of £35. Because then nobody would want to go from Liverpool to Manchester United and vice versa for the money. So if the maximum wage in 1960 had been, say, the Johnny Haynes £100 a week... Mm -hmm. Would we have been able to maintain it? So the the maximum wage rose, along with inflation, if you like, Mm. so that footballers were very well paid and weren't exploited as they were. Do you think that that maximum wage would have been a good thing to have retained? John, you dealt with us all the time. Yeah, I did. And as an agent, you can hardly expect me to say yes. (laughs) We get back to our old friend Bob Lord here, don't we, Mm. who was meant to oppose the idea of the maximum wage and who, incidentally, refused to lend or sell players to Manchester United after the Munich air crash. Can you hear my dogs now? Is that... Yes, we can. He thinks the same as me. He thinks she's talking absolute rubbish. We're talking about the maximum wage. To answer the question seriously, I think that any attempt to preserve a maximum wage would have foundered somewhere down the line. I mean, John will tell me when Bosman was, but... That, for me... 96, I think. It's probably the day I moved from a semi-detached house. Yes, exactly. That was actually a more relevant thing in terms of the modern game. Now, it would be very, very difficult because of the competitive nature of the league. And as soon as that stops, you've got the European Super League. Yes. So, it's a great idea, but basically, once you bring it in... Football becomes a commodity. Well, it will founder in legal terms. It would be a legal challenge to it, and then, then it would be restraint of trade. Yes, yes. The US get away with it because theirs is a pretty closed league. We have now, we have to accept an international league. The reason that we have all the, well, most of the world's top players now playing in our league is actually because of the fact our league makes more money mm-hmm. than the others, and therefore they can pay them more. So it's opened up. Doesn't that in itself start to eat away at the loyalty? We were talking about Best and Charlton. Best was reluctant to move from United, even when it was all going wrong with Tommy Doherty and Frank O'Farrell and so on. He was reluctant to move. He had a feeling about United. And, you know, Busby's feeling about Charlton not leaving United was reciprocated. Charlton never wanted to go anywhere else but but stay at United. And other clubs with other players had, had similar emotional responses. Would it be fair to say that that loyalty between club and player, and therefore fan base, is related to the fact that they're not constantly looking for the next move to another club for another £5 a week. It has changed completely. The connection between players and supporters has altered a great deal. 
you moved on from an era where players lived exclusively in the towns. They may not have come from the towns, but they lived in the towns. Nowadays, they're no longer seen out in the town in which they play. Most of them avoid going out in the town in which they play. So it's a completely different relationship between the town, the club and the player. And also, players now look at things as careers, don't they? They're no longer fixed with one club. No longer are they forcibly transferred. In the old days, you know, they would be called in, they'd have no inkling, and the manager would say, uh, we've decided to transfer you to Sunderland when they were playing for Exeter. And he didn't have much say that, we, you know, you could turn down a transfer in those days, but it was pretty difficult to. And, of course, if you did turn it down, they then produced the brown envelope and told them that they'd better go. Otherwise, things would be difficult for them. Francis Lee had fallen out with Bill Ridding, who was manager of Bolton Wanderers in the late 50s and early 60s. And he wanted a transfer. He wasn't given it. Eventually, Ridding called him into his office and said, get in the car. And Ridding drove him in silence. He knew he was going to meet a manager of another side. He didn't know where he was going. I ended up in Manchester City at the Joe Mercer Mark of Allison, which was great, so he signed immediately. But the fact that he was so powerless that he had to sit in the car and be driven somewhere to his next club by the manager is an indication of the place of the footballer in the hierarchy yeah. in 1967. Yeah, that was the game that I first entered. And I can remember going with Shilton to meet the officials of Stoke City, Tony Waddington and Billy Williams, who's the secretary. And they said, well, first of all, you're not allowed in the room. And so I said, well, in that case, Peter, we'd better go. And of course, he stuck to that and said, no, unless John is here, I'm not going to discuss terms with you. They looked a bit shocked. And then Tony Waddington said, I've signed lots of big players. This is what I'm going to pay you. Yeah. So for the second time, I said, in which case, we're off back to Leicester. Right. And so he then said, well... What will you accept? And so on. I mean, we broke the rules at that point. I'm open about that. I broke the rules by going into those negotiations. Players weren't allowed to have representatives. But if we go back an era or two to Colin's list, we mentioned before about the loyalty. Nobody expected Chilton to spend his entire career. Even Gary Lineker, you know, week in, week out, going on about how much he loves Leicester. I mean, he couldn't wait to get out of the place. That's not true. <laughs> I know, I'm only pulling your leg, but that doesn't make him a bad man because off Collins' list, Tom Finney was perhaps the most synonymous with loyalty. Played his entire career for Preston North End. You know, was a plumber in the town, went on to become a fixture at Deepdale, was always at the club, always on hand to help the manager and anybody else around the club. Wonderful, wonderful person, as well as arguably the greatest player of his generation. And yet, when he was approaching the peak of his career, he played brilliantly against Italy, I think. And an offer came in from Palermo of Serie A at the time, of first Italian division. And the offer would have given Tom Finney, I think, £10,000 a year instead of £1,000 a year, which was... And a villa and a car. And everything. You know. And it came from Palermo, famous for offers you were not meant to turn <laughs> You were down. not meant to refuse. <laughs> and let me tell you that Tom Finney would not have refused it. He wanted to go. Do you know the response of the chairman, the chairman's famous phrase? Yes, he said, I'll put you out of football, didn't he? Something like that. They'll play for us or they'll play for no one, lad. 
which only showed that Sicilian values were alive and well in <laughs> detail as well. But he said, I don't blame the players of today for changing class. You know, like Lineker, like Shilton, of improving themselves, of stretching themselves by going, in Lineker's case, to Barcelona. Tom Finney wanted to do that. He wanted to play in Italy. And it was only partly because of the money. Players would have changed hands just as often in the good old days as they do now, if they could. The going abroad bit is, of course, interesting because, of course, John Charles did. He went to Italy and he became arguably a bigger star in Italy than he was in this country. Yes. And then we get other players. We haven't mentioned, would Greaves still be a great player? Yeah, you yeah, didn't I mention think. him. Yeah. I think Greaves would have been, in many ways, an even better player in this era. If you look at all his qualities, the goal-scoring qualities certainly would have been even a higher value. But he went abroad. Dennis Law went abroad. Jerry Hitchens, who was actually an average sort of centre-forward, mm-hmm. an old-fashioned centre-forward, he went abroad and stayed. But the international aspect persisted almost up until the Premier League period that players who went abroad didn't succeed. Ian Rush went abroad and said it was like playing in a foreign country. (laughs) A lot of other players went abroad. And as soon as they went abroad, the feeling was, oh, they'll come home. They won't adapt. Mark Hughes being a classic example. I knew a bit about Mark Hughes going to Barcelona. He went at the same time as Lineker did. I met him out there. I don't think he wanted to actually go. But at that point, it was made pretty clear, it was to everyone's financial benefit, including Ron Atkinson's, that he went there. I wrote a screenplay for a film called Buster, and much of the pleasure of of it was about he had to go abroad because he was being chased by the police, having committed the great train robbery. But his wife was terribly unhappy, and all the arguments I rehearsed in the screenplay were the arguments that were common in Britain at the time, which is, I don't like abroad. <laughs> I don't, you know, the food's funny, people are different, and I've got sunburn, and the, all the familiar staging posts of life in Britain had disappeared. You know, Dennis Law and Jimmy Greaves did not settle there. They did come back. They did find that they'd missed Britain and they missed British. But football was less homogenous. There's still a, a difference between... English and, let's say, English and Italian football. I mean, mainly the English is much more rich and therefore better. But you can see a 4 all draw in Italy now, in Serie A, and mm. nobody bats an eyelid. If you saw one back in Dennis Law's day, the police would have moved in to find out who corrupted <laughs> it. But Dennis was miserable partly for footballing reasons. You wouldn't get that difference now because there's an international exchange of tactics and pretty well everything else, nutrition. You won't be eating different food. You'd be eating pretty well the same food as you'd be having at home. But can we go back to the list? And John Charles, as you pointed out, he was almost as good a centre-half as he was a centre-forward. And as a centre-forward, he is, even now, I think, regularly tops the charts of the best foreign player ever to play for Juventus. And bear in mind... There are Michel Platini's on that list and lots of other great, great foreign players have played for Juventus. What would he have been like in the game today? I mean, from what I can remember of him, he was big enough to knock anybody out of the way but didn't. Yeah, yeah, a gentle uh, giant. He was the gentle it. giant, exactly. His, his problem was that, that he played for unfashionable teams before he went to Italy. He played for Leeds United 
And he played for Wales. Yes. And even in a time that predates the current obsession with public relations, he went under the radar in the 50s when he was here. Matthews and Finney got much more publicity than Charles. And he was, by all accounts, I didn't see him, a great player. But I think that's one of the reasons. Where can you imagine? I mean, we can all imagine George Best being the Cristiano Ronaldo of the day. John's painted a picture of how Matthews could have fitted into the modern game. Where can you imagine John Charles playing? He would have played the same sort of positions. He might well have been a brilliant centre-back along the lines of Virgil van Dijk, or he could equally have been an Erling Haaland up front. Yes. He was a pretty complete player. I think he probably... He would have moved within the Premier League now, wouldn't he? He wouldn't have gone abroad, I don't think. No, not at all. So he would have gone to one of the big six and Manchester City would have played him at right back, according to Colin. <laughs> Erling Haaland's not been played out of position yet, has he? So that's, no, he hasn't. And nor will he. Right, that's him as the Erling Haaland. I can really see him as Erling Haaland. Charlton will certainly have adapted. Absolutely no problem because he was the universal footballer as well. He spent much of his career outside left. He also played as a sort of almost a second striker for a time, scored lots and lots of goals. He was England's leading goal scorer with 50-ish goals. 49. And he wasn't a striker. Yeah, and nor did he take penalties. Nor did he take penalties. I mean, at times, I think in his peak, he almost thought he was cheating to score from inside the penalty area. (laughs) I can also remember one game at Wembley where I think England played Scotland in 65. Yes. They had a number of injuries during the game and Charlton went to left back at one stage and looked absolutely brilliant. So he was pretty much an all-purpose player. As we've said, Finney was... Bobby Moore, could he have played up front? No, I don't think no. so. He started he off as a midfield player. probably hadn't got the pace to play up front, no. to be honest. No. John was the last player I remember who was openly two-footed. Yes. I mean, you got the ball and you didn't know which foot he was going to use. I didn't even know if he was left-footed or right-footed. And I remember going to Old Trafford in the 60s. Probably, almost certainly went to the same games. Yeah. And there was a rising crescendo of expectancy when Charlton got the ball in the centre circle and started to move forward and the defence retreated. The thing about it is that you see Charlton-esque football in the modern game. This ability to keep possession, spread the play. Yes, he could score goals and got two in the European Cup final of 1968. But, you know, often I would watch Wayne Rooney and see... Him drifting back. Remember, people always used to say, oh, the trouble with Wayne Rooney is he doesn't goal hang. He wants to join in. Do you know, every time he dropped back, I used to think, you're trying to be Bobby Charlton. And he was, because the same impulses that led Bobby Charlton to move a little bit deeper so that he could design the play fell on Wayne Rooney, who was as well as a goal scorer, he was a football brain. Charlton certainly would have crossed the generation's Even the ageing Charlton could have played in any midfield position today and would improve every team in in the country, including Man City. And, of course, because of his shooting ability, if Charlton got the ball 30 yards out, Mm. he was in shooting distance of the goal. Yes. Why do we not see shooting like that of Charlton and Peter Lorimer? Why do we not see that these days? Are defences better structured? Yes, of course. They're much, much better organised and in-depth. Yes. You know, in those days, you had two fullbacks, a centre-half, and then 
three wing halves mm -hmm. and quite often five forwards, you know. So there was more opportunity, wasn't there, to shoot mm -hmm. in those days. Look at the number of blocks that are now made in a game and the opportunity to shoot. They close down the opportunities to shoot for players. Mm. Who would Bobby Moore be in the modern game? I mean, Guardiola would be absolutely gagging for him. He'd have been a better version of John Stones, wouldn't he? Yes. Except in terms of height, yes, he would. Maybe not as quick, but of course, all of Moore's speed was mental. He was very, very seldom caught remotely out of position. He was known for being unflustered. That was because he was clever enough to never to get into positions where he had to be flustered. So I think he would fit into any team in the world today. I don't remember him being, you know, a great header of the ball. No, that's why Jack Charlton was there. I mean, Jack would head any ball. I mean, if, if a ball came over and Jack couldn't get to it, he'd, he'd be angry, he'd be grumpy. That's mine. Would Alan Hansen perhaps have bridged the gap between the modern-day John Stones and the Bobby Moore of that era. Yes, absolutely, that's true. I think if Hansen had wanted to get to the standard of the six, Colin, that you selected, he could yes. have done. What a player, he could do anything. He could have actually kept going like a Beckenbauer, easily, not just stop at the halfway line like even Rio Ferdinand, who could have been a Beckenbauer. They just stopped at the halfway line as if crossing the halfway line gave you a nosebleed. Yeah, Hansen could have done that. Hansen, to me, was the nearest thing to, to Bobby Moore, yes. Although England had plenty of candidates. Funnily enough, in the old days, we think of football as a bit more, you know, lumpy. There were great footballing centre-halves. Well, Neil Franklin was famous. Well, uh, you're Franklin. going way, way back. Franklin, yes, absolutely. But if you go forward, you'd go McFarlane, Todd. I think Todd probably one of the best defenders. Colin Todd held a really poor Sunderland side together yes. for a number of years. Yes. Absolutely terrific player and a fantastic signing by Brian Clough for Derby County, wasn't yeah. he? I mean, the other player who was a great player going forward, who played in a number of, started playing as an attacking midfield player, became a defender, was David Nish, who, who didn't play as many times actually for England as perhaps he should have done. Mm. Actually, about footballing centre-halves, the one that never really gets mentioned is late period Dave Mackay, who did, oh, Derby who did so Dave much Mackay. for Derby County under yeah. under Clough. Yeah. Took him up and, and, well, the rest is, is history. Let me try to wrap things up by going into an area of comparison again between then and now. Do we think that great players dominate clubs to an extent that managers not only build the team round the player, but have to accept that that player will get them out of trouble at, at any point, that they need that player so badly. What is the balance between Matthews Finney, Charles Charlton, Beston Moore, and their respective clubs or managers, in the sense that there were such great players, they stood out in those teams. Did the managers kowtow to players in those days more than they do now, or has it not really ever changed? Great players are great players, you want them on your side? I think there's a difference between the chairman, the manager, and the player in mm. those days. It was the chairman who told Tom Finney he was playing for them or nobody else. The managers were dictators, but they were authorised to be dictators by the chairman. Do the managers love players in the way that they do now? I suspect, actually, they didn't because relationships were very different then. 
you know, it was definitely a case of boss and employee in those days. Now it, it's a completely different relationship. The manager was an extension of the chairman, wasn't he? I agree with all that about the structure. I think that where players who were bigger than the club's an ugly phrase, but, you know, Matthews and Finney were not the type to preen, but Matthews and Finney were Preston and Blackpool in their absolute prime. Yes, they were. Charlton was not Manchester United in the prime of Manchester United because there was the Trinity, you know, there were also Law and Best. But by and large, it's very rare now for a manager to build a team around a player. It's a sign of weakness. And the classic example would be Barcelona under Messi. Barcelona used Messi really to paper over such cracks that the club is now half dead after his departure. And indeed, had he stayed, would be half dead. It possibly won't come back for a generation, Barcelona. So it's very, very rare for a player to dominate a club as Messi did in his final six years at Barcelona. Even Ronaldo at at Real Madrid, even Benzema now at Real Madrid, are not so dominant over the club. Who dominates Liverpool? Virgil van Dijk might be the best player in the team. But you can't imagine the team using it as an excuse if they had to have Matip and Gomez, say, there as their centre-backs. In many clubs, the role of dominant figure, once occupied by the Matthews, the Finney, the whatever, is now occupied by the manager. The manager is a performer. The manager, the reason they're paid a lot, of course, is that they take the ultimate route. Managers stayed longer in those days. Mm -hmm. Immediately now, if you're in the bottom three by the first week in October, you're almost bound to get the sack now. Managers universally, the turnover is extraordinary. You've got still 92 clubs. You've probably got about 184 managers in a season. Paddy, do you think that the players of today will survive in the game of old. We've agreed that the game is so different now from what it was then. Do you think today's modern, namby-pamby, pampered players, (laughs) paid too much, overindulged babies, could have survived in the hard-knock world of the 1960s? Yes, I do. Let's take a few examples. I'll start off with Cristiano Ronaldo. I think he would obviously have had a fantastic career because he had speed, he had tricks, he thrilled the crowd. I think that had he been in, let's say, the 60s, he would have spent his entire career as an outside right. And he would never have moved around to all the different positions that he did. Players were moved around a a lot less, but he would still have been an outstanding outside right. All right, let me ask an auxiliary question to that, which is how would Cristiano Ronaldo have dealt with Roy Hartle and Tommy Bank? I mean, I'm serious because they would have tried to put him on the cinder track. Yes, yes. And that's what Phil Bucks did. The answer is he would almost certainly have been injured more and would probably have received a serious injury. There are various players invalided out of the game at an early period. You know, I had particular reverence for Mike Stringfellow, who played for Leicester in the early 60s. Very good, fast, direct winger, goal-scoring winger. Virtually got kicked out of the game and lost his pace and so on as a result. And medical science wasn't as developed then. So there would be players who would now play 
Anna would have unfortunately not made it because physically they would have been uh, kicked around a lot more. They'd have had injuries from which they'd never have come back. Why did Matthews and Finney not get kicked out of the game? Because you're quite right about the brutality. The answer is, I think in Matthews' case, that he was so quick. I think it's a little bit about speed, speed yeah. and also cleverness. Yeah. Even if you go forward to George Best, he hurdled tackles. Yeah. There's that famous clip of Ron Chopper-Harris. Yes. I think he tried yes. to break both of his knees in the same tackle. And George Best simply absorbed the blow and didn't even stumble. And also now they go down because actually a tackle like that would mean a yellow card. Yes. And if a winger gets his fullback into a situation where he takes a yellow card early in the game, yes. he's trying to get him to foul him again because yes. he'll be yes. off. Yes. In that sense, the game has changed. But medical science means that a lot of players who've been able to come back now wouldn't have come yes. back then. Yes. I think that's where we leave it. I think we've had a jolly good natter about times past and times present. I think we've discussed the great players and our love for and appreciation of them. And we've discovered that there are great players in every generation and they will be great players in any generation. And that's as far as we need to go. So I want to say thank you very much to Paddy Barclay and thank you very much to John Holmes and we'll see you all again next time on Football Ruined My Life. Goodbye and thank you for listening.